0: invite you to turn in your copy of god's word we're going to dive in today into the book of james book of james chapter 2 if you are using one of our black few bibles that are sitting there um, in in the pew in front of you you're going to be on page 1071 if you have no clue where to find the book of james we don't presume that everybody knows where each of the 66 books in the bible are but we do want to help them find it. And if you ever need a Bible, not only here, but anywhere, feel free to take that one in the pew. We can always replace it. That would be our gift to you. Not so we can pat ourselves on the back, but we ultimately want to get the, God's Word in people's heart because the Bible says that faith comes by hearing the Word of God and that Word being Christ. And if we can get it to your hands, that's one step closer to your heart. And so please take that. Is our gift to you. But we're going to be in the book of James. And as we're looking at the book of James, we, we're still in the early uh, part of this book. You, you're going to see we're going to be in chapter two of this letter. Now, I just want to put this little notification here. The book of James is a letter from the apostle James to the churches dispersed. So while you're going to see chapter and verse, a big number and a little number, and the way it's divided, those were not added in until uh, around A.D. 1300. And that was for scholars, people that were looking through the Bible to find their place. So when you're reading this, it's very easy for us just to take it and bracket it off as if they are exclusive from one another. But this is a letter written together, and it's meant to be read together, although we're only going to be looking at a certain passage today. But as we look at it, it's a it's a letter that is written to the church that has that grown in their faith, that has grown in their doctrinal foundation of who Jesus is. They are people that are saved. They are people that are born again. They are people that have new life through the Holy Spirit. They have come to this place where they recognize already that Jesus is the Messiah. That is not the direction and trajectory that James is trying to get them to. He's he's writing to people that, if you're reading this and you're in the church, I'm recognizing that you should already be saved. But he also knows that there could be people that are not. And at that point, he leaves it up to the pastors and the shepherds and those local churches to help people understand and explain. But what James is trying to write to these churches that are dispersed abroad, they're dispersed abroad because of persecution at home, but they need to know that But just because they're facing these uncertain days in uncertain places, it does not mean that what God has allowed went without purpose. That it is pointed and that they, just as they had in their home, just in the had in the past, this place of a nourished, thriving, sustainable, practical faith, they can have that where they're at. But what it's going to mean is taking what they know, their convictional theological foundation, and putting it into practice. But James is also recognizing here that as good as that is, it is possible to allow the circumstances of this world to derail, derail us from being friends of mercy. That as followers of Jesus, we are meant to be friends of mercy. And here is an example, apparently, of something that James has heard of what is going on, or maybe James witnessed in his own congregation going on. We are not sure exactly where. But at a place of consideration that says, Wow! Mercy has gone haywire. And not in its overwhelming and overflowing as mercy upon mercy, but it's gone short-circuited where people are limiting it. And that should never be because Jesus did not limit His mercy towards us. So let us stand and, and let's look at how James, uh, moved by the Holy Spirit, is penning this letter and how it is preserved for us today. I encourage you to follow along in your copy of God's Word, whether it be on a device or whether it be in print, and it will certainly be on the screen behind me. But as we stand to honor so many things in our culture, it is good for us to stand in the honor of God's Word. He says this, My dear, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For someone comes to you in your meeting wearing a gold ring and and dressed in fine clothes. And a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in. So they're coming at the same time. And if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and you say, sit there in a a, a good place. And yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or, or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that He has promised to those who love Him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors for whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking its all for god said for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder so if you do not commit adultery but you murder you are a lawbreaker speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom For judgment is without mercy to the one who is not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let us pray. Lord God, we have read from your word. I pray that today, regardless of where we are in the faith, whether we are new to the faith, familiar to the faith, or just asking questions that you would show us in your heart, in our hearts, in our minds, That You, the Holy Spirit, are the one who who gave this. It, It is from You. So it is inerrant. It is infallible. It is inspired. It is illuminating. It is needed for every soul. And today I pray that as we handle Your Word, we would do it correctly. That we would not do it in a way that is ashamedly misused or mistrusted. But we would be open to the way that You lead us. And help us, as You lead us, help us be those that faithfully follow. In a way that is not just a new idea or a new interpretation or a new bit of knowledge. Because all of this is an ancient faith. But in a way that is practical. Nothing in your word has ever changed. But how we live this word out beyond these walls, that might be changed today. And I pray that as you lead, let us live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Each week, when we get into god 's word, we, we want to help people gain a, a better understanding of the word that 's kind of the whole reason for preaching and teaching it 's why we have connection groups at nine thirty on, on, on Sunday mornings for our kids they 're on a three year cycle of, of learning biblical literacy so that they can have a, a foundation of what the Bible says and, and that that three year foundation will take them through Genesis through revelation every three years and they 're gaining knowledge and, and every one of our smaller classes our younger classes are all in the same lesson each day for our older adults um, for those that are 18 and above we we spend time uh, discussing what we've heard reading through what we've heard asking questions of one another so that we may sharpen why because we understand that the word and the information when it leads to application that's good that's good for us it's good for our soul But if we merely have information, it never moves us to practice, what good is that information? And so when we spend time trying to understand it and move it from not only information to application, we're asking questions like, what does it say? That's why we spend time reading from the Word and our messages are driven by the Word, not just whatever topic we want to find. And if we can find a verse to kind of cram into the hole to make it fit, that's not what we're doing. We're letting it the Word drive us. And may that be always the trajectory of your life as a Christian. That you don't say, hey, I have this idea, I have this theory, I have this mindset. And let me just see if I can piecemeal a few little verses scattered through the Bible to fit my preconceived notions. To fit my own ideas. But instead, let me hear what God's Word says overall that whole thread that knits all 66 of these books together help me hear for them and if they shape my life and things have to change so be it that is the direction we need to have but as we hear what it says we need to find out what it means we're going to see that this letter was written in the mid 40s a.d in the middle of persecution And as you see, something is going on about favoritism and a lack of mercy that the Bible says will clearly be judged. So these are things not to ever be taken lightly. None of God's Word ever is. But when we see words like judgment from the Lord, the law of the Lord, these should make our ears attuned even more. We should be even more quick to listen and slow to speak and find out what does this mean Because obviously, something that I'm going to face at the end of my days will pertain to this. We're seeing how it applies in our life. All right, not only will I deal with this spiritually, but what is the practical application of it? And lastly, will we trust what God is saying? When we spend time in God's Word, it's always an act of worship. How we treat that act of worship, it depends on the heart and the soul and the condition of where we're at. If our heart of worship is like, ah, yeah, yeah, I hear this every week not really a big deal or it's just on my to-do list i just got to check through it we can automatically by our activities by our lack of attention by our focus on other details instead of god's word richly and graciously provided to us we're automatically saying my heart of worship is not there and if i'm not paying attention it's going to be hard for me to trust so we need to be carefully focusing on what's there And James is calling this church for a practical faith to be demonstrated among their various walks in life, among the various corners of the earth. And here he is imploring, he is encouraging, he is exhorting in a way that says, hey, I don't want to butter this up, I don't want to sugarcoat this. Don't show favoritism, it's evil. It's a pretty stark in your face little statement, is it? Not like, "Eh, you know, just be cautious of it. You know, just be wary. No, it is evil in the eyes of God. And what it's letting us know is that we could have an incredible concentration on theology. And without a concern for humanity, that is a case of biblical incompatibility. That if our whole focus is, yeah, I got enough spiritual things to tie me over, enough feel-good encouragement words, clever phrases, uh, things I can fill my Facebook or Instagram post with to 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 tide me over and make me feel good about myself. That's enough concentration on the theology, but without an actual concern for humanity, what we're missing out is biblical compa- compatibility. It is not coming together the way that God has laid out for us. what the bible is calling for is true religion real faith practiced out of a sacrificial love not based on our own attempt at something but looking and reflecting the cross it is not a cheap belief it is one that hears god obeys god and loves others as it follows god now In the case of favoritism, in the case of what's going on, how do we detour and and, and move off the default place to be focused on just the normal way the world reacts? The normal way the world reacts. And and, and here's here's a picture. And and I I was reading this in one of my studies from another pastor and and I just thought it was really good and applicable today. It came out of uh, David Platt's book on the book of James. He says, this is real world. If you go into a cafeteria at lunch, somewhere you've you've never been, somewhere you've never seen, and there are only two tables, and they already have people sitting at the table. You don't know any of them. You don't know their names. You don't know their backgrounds. You don't know their jobs. You don't know their departments, wherever you may be in this cafeteria. But one has a table that has the same skin color, color as you. You hear maybe the same accent as you. You see the same kind of clothes that you wear, and the other it maybe has a little bit different cultural accent, their skin color is a little bit different, and, and maybe they're not dressed the same. What table do you automatically default to? I know I'm stepping on toes, it's stepping on mine when I read that. Because sometimes we're like, oh, you know, it's just my upbringing, it's just my comfort, it's just a, it's strictly that. I'm, I'm not like that, pastor. No, none of us would say we're like that. But we know how we would answer that question. And that disturbs us. And it should. It should. It should awaken and move our soul so we figure out, you know what? Something is broken. And I may not have think about it in the moment, but Pastor, you calling out and and me knowing what the answer is, and it tugs, it's either going to make me really mad at you or really feel, what's wrong? And that's okay to have that. That's why James puts this picture of what's going on. That if someone comes into your meeting and they're wearing a gold ring and they're dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in if you look on with favor with one wearing the fine clothes and say sit here in a good place and yet you say to the poor person stand over there and sit on here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's a real world issue. But as people that follow Jesus and see how He, He had dinners, with people that were considered sinners and, and drunkards and the poor. And, and He would have dinner with the religiously elite as well and sometimes call them to account. He would have dinner with those that were rich but in the world's eyes were considered evil. It's calling us to say Jesus was a... a if mercy had a name, it was Jesus. Because it was everything about Him. The cross echoes it. So how much more so should His followers, those that say, I carry the name of Jesus. I have been born again by the blood of Jesus. I have been raised from death to life by the Spirit of Jesus. I am His image bearer. How much more so should we carry it? That demonstration of mercy to the uttermost. Um. Mr. Martin's calling me? Is he okay? They were right there. Would someone, one of our deacons go check and see if he's okay? Or call him? Because I don't know why he was calling. It may be a bottom dial. I know how that happens. So how do we deal with it? How do we combat that? First, we must focus on the exaltation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, do not show favoritism as you do what? As you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know church speak. Words put together, strum together like glorious Lord Jesus Christ. We may have heard that so many times it's just become old hat to us. It may not even bring us about a a deeper thought. But here's how James is reflecting on the half-brother that he once denied as the Messiah. He is the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He's equating Jesus in Jesus with the very glory that would sometimes fill the temple so weighty that not even priests could enter. And yet the glory that is in the Lord Jesus Christ invites all to come in. Isn't that awesome? It is so amazing that in the Old Testament, with God, there was only a strict way and a provision for you to make nearer to Him. But in Jesus Christ, because of the cross, all may draw in. It's incredible. And so, James is saying, do not show favoritism as you hold on to that. As you hold on to the glorious gift that has been given to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. As you see Him, that is how you combat favoritism. Look to Jesus. And you do this because the Scripture is telling us to do that. It's the entreaty of Scripture, the exhortation, the encouragement. It's telling us to do this as we combat favoritism. It's showing us this because in Jesus is that example that we need. How would Jesus treat the two different people? If we're honest, we'd probably say a little bit different than you and I. You know, I grew up in the what would Jesus do uh, generation. That, that was the big thing. Sell the armbands, walk around proudly. What would Jesus do? Then go over to the smoker corner and, and go hang out in the, in the parking lot and hook up with whoever you could. Yeah, I'm tattling. That, that was what I grew up in. All around me. I looked and, you know, the same thing I was doing, the same thing where people at churches were doing in my life. And it would be easy for me to say, you know what, because all the other culture is just doing the same thing, I can just stay the same way. But because of Jesus, the trajectory of our life changes. It moves us towards holiness. And so even in this area where we may think it's not that big of a deal, it is a big deal because that is not how Jesus would Interact with people. That was how culture did it. It's how culture still does it. You know, there are belief systems in this world. Some that even call them churches that follow Jesus. That based on how much you can give and how much you faithfully contribute determines where you want to sit in the room. It's true. If you're a big giver, One of the ways they recognize that and let everybody else recognize that and says, hey, brother, hey, miss, sister, you get the front row treatment. All that leg room, it's really beautiful. There's lots of leg room up here, by the way. That would be it. You get to sit in the front of the room. And and that was a way of of recognition, and you wanted to be applauded for that. But if you were of little means, you go sit in the back wall. You be a wallflower. We'll get to you when we get to you. Which is very funny to me because in the church today, in our church, it's kind of like, how far, how close can I get to the back row? The back row is like the honored row, right? Is that it? I'm not trying to mess. All right, thumbs up. All right. You know, I don't want to sit in the front, the back room. where There's no leg room. That's where I want to be. But I I just find that amusing. That this example is given here, but that was exactly what goes on. And it still goes on today in, in other places of worship. But it should never be. It's being condemned based on the direction of Scripture, based on the example of Jesus. And it's being condemned because even when you read it, you can say, as I'm looking through it, this evidence is presented. I mean, if this is actually going on, we would say, that's wrong. Right? If you were just reading that off the cuff one day, you'd be like, well, how dare they? Treating the guy with the gold ring and the fine clothes better than the poor guy. That's terrible. That evidence just automatically condemns them. I'm reading about it in black and white. And and now I just know that's bad. The evidence is seen. And so we should see that in this, if we're going to combat this, we've got to be first focused on the, the supremacy, the exaltation, the worship of Jesus... Based on the direction the scriptures leading us, based on what it presents to us, based on who Jesus is. In 2 Samuel 16, there was another scenario where this kind of came up. 2 Samuel 16 is where David is anointed king by the prophet Samuel. God is telling him to go anoint another king that he has set aside. He has torn apart and decided that, that the, the the line of Saul will no longer lead the people of Israel. And so Samuel goes and is sent to this little town in Bethlehem. Uh, not the Christmas time one, but it I mean it's the same city, but not at the same time. Uh, but he's sent there to the home of Jesse. Now, Bethlehem is not a big, glorious place. It was a shepherd's village. Really poor area. But when he goes to the house of Jesse, he tells him, I, you need to bring in my sons. And the very first one came in and he was, he was tall and he, he looked handsome and, and Samuel thought to himself, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But as soon as he thought it, the, the Lord says, do not look at him in that way. He is not the one I have chosen for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord sees the heart. And after seven sons that had passed through, that had been brought in, Samuel seeing that all of them are not the ones that the Lord has chosen. And he looks at Jesse and says, this is it, this is all your kids, all, all seven, I've had plenty to choose from. And they're like, no, there's the ruddy kid that's out there tending the sheep. I didn't bring him in. He's the last born. Bring him in. And the very one that was ruddy, not even considered by his own father. Think about that. That's the one the Lord chose. See what scripture says in pointing us towards this. This evaluation that's painted, that's under scrutiny, it shows that there was partiality going on, it shows that there was pride abundant. And and I love what Pastor Tony Evans wrote, when I share these quotes, it's it's just that they're striking, I think that we need to share them. It says, understand, we're not talking about discriminating between right and wrong based on God's Word. We're talking about discriminating where God has shown no personal, partiality. Looking at the outside to determine a person's worth. Pastor Johnny Hunt said this, the way that we behave towards people indicates what we really believe about God. That when we do this, it indicates what we really believe about God. And if we believe He is the glorious Lord Jesus and He is the Father and giver of mercy and grace upon grace and that His grace is sufficient for us and that even though we may try to bargain and think, I need to do this because it's beneficial for me. I need to chase after this because it's beneficial to me. Instead of saying every soul that, that was seen on the cross, Jesus died for and I'm to pursue them all. I'm to love them all. We're missing out. So let us be focused on exalting Jesus and seeing the world as He sees them. We must be formed by the redemption of Christ if we're also going to combat this issue. Not only should we be focused on the exaltation of Christ, but formed by His redemption. It is a part of, of recognizing what Jesus has done for us. He says, listen, my dear brothers, he said, pay attention to this. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that He promised to those who love him? Now, whether you consider yourself a person of means or not, all of us, in the considerable measure of worth between us and King Jesus, we are broke. All of us are broke in comparison. All of us are impoverished comparatively. No matter how good you may have had it. Every one of us is in desperate, destitute need. We are all beggars looking for bread when it comes to the comparison between Jesus and us. And it says that God chose the poor of this world. It's, this harkens back to a similar the phrase that would be written later on. It wasn't written yet by the time this, this book of James was written. But in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich for your sake, He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. Now, I I love how sometimes God orchestrates certain things. That was in my reading verse today. I'm on a Bible reading plan and that's a good thing, a healthy thing to pick up. That was in my Bible reading plan. And, and, and I had read it before this week, but this morning it just echoed so much in preparing for this, that God, though He was rich, that the grace of the Lord Jesus is, the Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich for your sake, for my sake, He became poor so that by His poverty you might become rich you ever really considered what Jesus has done and the costly nature of that? It is worth considering. It is worth getting on your knees and praying about. Because I'll tell you, I came from a home. This, this is a little bit of my story. I came from a home we, we weren't really rich at all. But we weren't really poor. We, we were kind of that middle class. My dad's blue collar. He he worked in a tire factory. My grandfather was a plumber. Uh, my, my mother, um, she didn't graduate high school. Didn't even have a GED. Um, I was. She was 16 when I was born That's the kind of home we were raised in And I got to grow up in church In a really small, you know Bivocational pastor, choir Passing down robes that were, you know 100 years old church That was where I kind of grew up in And I came to faith when I was 11 years old That was whenever I placed my faith in. And at that moment, I didn't understand all the the enormity of that decision. I, I didn't. I didn't understand how awesome it really is that Jesus would save a soul like me. I just knew I didn't want to go to hell. That was pretty big deal for me at 11 years old. I don't want to die. I don't want to go to hell. So Jesus being like, hey, you follow Jesus and he'll help you with that scenario. That was a pretty good deal. But I struggle with how much Jesus had offered me. I mean, I had a Nintendo, I had my own room with a 13-inch a box television, I had a waterbed. I was doing pretty good. I just need Jesus to kind of help me out with the hell issue, because everything else was good on my end. I got it covered. But I did not realize absolutely how poor and needy I was and how incredibly gracious and rich it is that Jesus would do this for you and for me. And because of it, I wasted so many years living for all those other things other than Jesus. And I regret it deeply. I do but I am thankful for another day of grace that He he decided, you know what? Today, I consider it worthy that a heartbeat would still be in your chest. That there would still be kids around the table that you could help lead. That there would still be a church that, that you could pastor. That, that you could have friends that you could talk with. Those are huge. But more than anything, that grace did not give up on you today. And it never will. Because that's the riches of grace that meets your poverty of sin. And it does it for all of us. And we all need it. I'm thankful that Jesus didn't look and see someone who was callous towards him so much. And say, I'll just give up on that one. I'm thankful for someone that says, well, I'm only the Jesus for really poor people and and you're not really poor. Or I'm the Jesus only for the really fine, gifted people and you're not really that either. I'm thankful that Jesus is for all. I'm thankful that in Jesus, as one pastor said, we have riches in Christ, a treasure that money cannot buy and that death could never steal. It is beautiful what we have in Him. And all of us, we have this new position by grace, by the choice that Jesus made, by the character of what Jesus lived out. And we see it echo and echo and echo over again what it means that He was became poor for our sake. His birthplace? Shepherd village. His hometown? People said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was podunk too. His vocation? He was the carpenter's son. He was blue-collar. His reputation, oh, we don't like that guy. Let's get rid of him. His cause of death, a traitor's death, a death reserved for terrorists, an ex It was a political, biblical statement. His burial place, his own gravesite didn't belong to him. It belonged to somebody else. But yet we're to turn our eyes upon Jesus to see how God chose us and that He chose all of us as the poor in the world to be rich in faith, to be heirs of this kingdom that He promised to those who loved Him. He has given us this crowning by what He has done. And yet, He says, you have dishonored the poor You've considered yourself of more worth and greater value in life than them. And yet, you look at someone else and say, well, they have greater worth than me, so I'm going to try to see if I can spend their life to my benefit. And that is wrong. That is wrong. Especially when the goal of our life is to have our churches, these families, these pockets of of what our future home will look like to be places where there's environments of mercy. Places where people can come to expect mercy because they think of Jesus. And so they would think when they get here, that's kind of what they'll probably see. People that look and live like Jesus. May that be what they see, because not because we're putting on a show, but because it's what we have. We know the mercy of Jesus that was extended to us. We know the redemption He offered. And we decide to demonstrate it. Because the world needs it. But also because we don't want to blaspheme the good name that was invoked over us. This picture of the good name invoked over us, that who is our covering, that who is our redemption, our grace. Not only this, but we must be fervent. If we're going to combat the issue of favoritism, not only should we be focused on exalting Jesus, and not only should we be people that are formed by the redemption that's found in Jesus, but we, we need to be, have a fervency for God's Word. To be lived out and applied in our life. Uh, and a fervency for the instruction of Christ. He says if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the Scripture to love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. By the way, he's quoting Leviticus 19 there. He's quoting what even Jesus said uh, in, in Matthew 22 that, that, that when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command that you could ever live out? In other words, if there was anything that was the most important thing that, that, that God expects us to do, what is it? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. If you're living those. If you're fulfilling the royal law prescribed in scripture. You are doing well. But then verse 9. But if however you show favoritism. Whether you know it or not. You commit Sin. You see, there's this royal law that's there talking about what it means to love the Lord and to love your neighbors yourself, those that are made in his image. But it also reveals that if we don't do it, guess what? Sinner. It's stamped all over us. We may not like it, we may be like, oh no, that's not a big deal. No, that, that the, the Bible's calling it out. It's saying this is a spade. It's there. And not only did you commit it, you're convicted by it. Not you will be. You are. You already stand with the verdict as transgressors. And this is not only in this point of the law, James takes this moment to explore and say, "I want you to know that favoritism is a sin." It is a way of discriminating in a way that is, is not adhering to the law that God has given us to love our neighbor as ourself. But this applies to all of the law. Not just the ones that we think are okay and the things that we think are bad or things we think are good. He says, for whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. He says, you who commit adultery do not, also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you murder, are you not a lawbreaker? I mean, think about it this if you were saying, Hey judge, uh yeah, I brutally killed that family. Totally did it. But you know what? I wasn't sleeping around. Those guys are terrible. What are you trying to look for? A character witness? What, What are you what are you trying to do there? You still broke the law. You still brought about harm. The same thing is true on the other side. See, we, we look at these things and we try to spiritualize them. And what we oftentimes do is instead of moving to spiritualizing them, we try to self-justify. The Bible says there are two types of sin. There's We label them as sins of commission, committing the things that God told us not to. That's rebellion. You know, whenever you were told as a kid or in your workplace, you shouldn't do this if you do it there's probably a problem right yeah we we get that but there's also the sins of omit omission where we omit the things we're supposed to do hey you were supposed to do this job now i didn't want to do that hey but i didn't do that you still broke the code you still broke you still have the verdict on you You the minute yourself you know, I know people are like oh i don't commit murder. But man, I do sure love a gossip circle. But I'm not committing murder, so that's, I'm okay, right? Man, I tell you, I don't sleep around, but I will backbite my neighbor. I gave to the poor. I just don't want to give them any time. It's a revealing law. And it tells us what the the gravity of the situation is. And when the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, it is resolute. It It is immovable. So what are we to do? We must first be focused and say, Lord... Help me reflect the glory that is found in you, the image that is found in you. Help me be a person that is fixed in my in my redemption, formed by it, shaped by it. Help me be a person that never loses sight of the Gospel of what you did for me. Help me be a person that is fervent for the instruction, not just the knowledge in it, but the application for it. As one pastor said, hearing God's Word and talking about God's Word can never substitute for doing god's word these are people now we may look it down on them but these are he's writing to the church he's writing to people that have probably heard the message they probably even recognize it it's very familiar to them but hearing about it and talking about it is no substitution for doing it we must do that which god has called us to do and lastly, we must be fixtures for the reflection of Jesus. He says, so, based on this, speak and act like those who were judged by the law of freedom. God has set you free by his grace from the penalty of sin. That's what he's done. He has provided the ultimate pardon. But what will you do with that freedom? Will you use it for good or for evil? I mean, that's kind of like what I do when I drink my coffee each morning. Will today's coffee power be used for good or evil? Because it gives me a little more oomph. But Jesus has done something immeasurably more than any cup of coffee could ever do. Will I use what he has given me for good or for evil? Will I use that freedom and to speak and act like those who have freedom? Or while I live as a display of rebellion, saying, yeah, I got freedom, but I didn't deserve that pardon. And I still don't deserve it. I'm going to abuse it. I'm going to stomp all over it. I'm going to spit on it. I'm never going to talk about it because it's worth nothing to me. Especially if it comes to practicing something that is contrary to the very direction of this world. I'm going to be like those who do not demonstrate mercy. And what I'm saying is, Jesus, I don't want to be like you. We are meant to be demonstrators of mercy. Why? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy wins. Mercy leads people towards Jesus. That's so what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans. Do you not recognize that it was the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance? You see, repentance in faith is nothing that can ever be coerced. And if, and if that was your life, I'm sorry, that was never the intention of Scripture to coerce you to this point, to, to force it in. It's also something that can be coddled, but it should be clearly demonstrated that mercy, recognizing it, brings triumph over judgment does that mean you can save another soul by being kind to them no but it does provide you the opportunity to show them the one who can whereas judgment probably will never present the case let's be people that are friends of mercy because we're followers of jesus the one whose mercy should be his nickname let's pray Lord, I thank you that uh, when it comes to our faith, when it comes to what it means in our life, it is not merely theoretical and abstract. It is meant to have a prevalency in our life that not only shapes us, but it has an impact on the world around us as they see you, the giver, the author of this living faith, this living hope. And today, Lord, I am so grateful I think every one of us could echo how we're so grateful for the mercy that you have demonstrated to us. Grace upon grace. Because I have had so many second chances, I've lost count. And I venture to say that would be an echo of this room. But Lord, help us not just take and take and take mercy without reflecting it. Without it not overflowing from our life. Lord, put it into practice through us so that the world may see, they may see the, the exaltation of who Jesus is, that we believe you are worth this, that they may see the gospel demonstrated in our lives and our words and deeds, that we don't take it for granted, that they may see the application of the word, the value of the word in our life and 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 want to know more about it. But Lord, that they may see Jesus. That because of what we do, they would glorify our Father who is in heaven. So Lord, make mercy shine through in a way like never before. So that this faith is thriving, growing, sustainable. Because without it, it's just crumbling and in ruin. And that would not be worth building. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time... Our musicians are going to play in the background. Each week we have this opportunity for response. Uh, an invitation, if you will, to say, Hey, um, based on what I've heard from the Scripture today, based on what I now know about Jesus, I need to take a step, a next step of trust, a next step of faith. And this is not something blindly. This is something based on what God has already opened your eyes to see. So today, wherever you are, we want to offer that invitation to you. And perhaps it could be for you that, that you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus. That, that, that fear of hell may still be there, that fear of death, that fear of loss, that fear for your soul. And I want to tell you that, yes, Jesus can overcome those things. But the reason that He came to die for you was not just to give you a golden ticket, but so that you could know Him as Lord, the one who loves you, the one who, who wants to share His kindness with you, the one who wants to adopt you, the one who wants to set you free, the one who wants to be with you and never leave you or forsake you. This is why He is a perfect Savior, not a travel agent. And today, if you want to follow Jesus and trust in Him as your Savior, I would love to help you take those steps of first admitting how we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus, believing on Him, as the Bible tells calling on Him, we come to Him and confess our faith in Him. And He forgives us of our sin and restores our soul. If that's you, I'd love to talk with you more. And if you need it, I'll be up here at the front. But in a room like this, it could be that there are many Christians that we could easily just try to dismiss anything else we need to do because we think, I've got the Gospel, I'm covered. But it could be that in this room, there are those that says, yeah, I, I've got the Gospel, but I have been disobedient in one point, so I'm guilty of breaking it all. It may not have caused a lot of damage and a wake behind us and destruction in our world, but according to Jesus, I'm disobedient at all. And so I need to get some things right. As a disciple, I need to take my personal faith and make it public in in, in a biblical baptism. As a a child of God, I need to be adopted and, and growing with a family, united in a church. As someone who is being called to a mission or called to ministry. I need to follow that and not be disobedient. That was me. I I ran from that for so long. But whatever it is, if you need someone just to pray for you, maybe you don't even know what it is yet, but something is just gripping your heart and say, I need to talk to somebody. I'm going to be down here at the front. And if you need counsel, we make ourselves available. But during this time, you follow. Take that next step that Jesus is calling you toward. He He is able to be trusted if He's saying, follow me. Please do it. We'll be here should you need help.